thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Earthquakes, hurricanes, floods, volcanic eruptions, the stuff of disaster movies, and apocalyptic scripture. And more often than you might think, reality. The Roman writer Pliny the Younger witnessed the eruption of Vesuvius about 40 years after the lifetime of Jesus. The sea seemed to roll back on itself, he wrote, driven from the shore by the convulsive motions of the earth. A black and dreadful cloud was riven with zigzag flashes, revealing terrifying masses of flame, and then we were immersed in thick darkness and a heavy shower of ashes rained down. It's generally accepted that natural disasters caused mass extinctions before human beings started roaming the planet. Here's the volcanologist Janet Sumner speaking on the Naked Scientist podcast, How Dinosaurs Died. There could be another mass extinction. One, if we were hit by another really big meteorite. And two, if we did have another flood lava eruption. But what is more likely to happen, a much bigger hazard for us, is if we have a supervolcano go off. Now, supervolcano eruptions happen every 50,000 to every 100,000 years. And there are a number of supervolcanoes around the world. And one particular candidate is long overdue, and that's Yellowstone Volcano in the US. Now, that is overdue by some thousand of years. So if that was to blow, it probably wouldn't cause global mass extinction, but it would certainly cause global famine. And that would probably mean the end of civilization as we know it. That's lovely. Natural disasters is our subject this week. What are we to make of them? How can we plan for them? Joining me are Professor Marie Edmonds, a member of the Dynamic Volcanology Group at the University of Cambridge and a fellow of Queen's College and the Reverend Dr. Roger Abbott from the Faraday Institute of Science and Religion, who has worked in disaster zones around the world and whose office is normally above mine. Welcome both. Marie, would you agree that Yellowstone is seriously overdue and what would you do if it blew? Well, yes, Yellowstone is indeed capable of really large eruptions uh, and each 
large eruption is capable of erupting, um, you know, thousands of cubic kilometers over a really short space of time. And that's what we call a supervolcanic eruption. And we have a log scale, actually, for volcanic eruptions that goes up to a log. It's a, it's a magnitude eight, so a volcanic explosivity index of eight. And so Yellowstone is certainly capable of, of extremely large eruptions. And if Yellowstone produced one of those kinds of eruptions, it wouldn't affect just the immediate vicinity, but it would also kind of veil the whole planet in aerosol and ash and cause wide, widespread famine, cold winters and darkness that may last several years. The good news is those kinds of eruptions don't happen very often. Uh, they happen every few hundred thousands of years or every million years or so. The last one happened about 630,000 years ago. So you could say it's overdue, but it remains incredibly unlikely in our lifetime. So how do we monitor it? Well, we look at small earthquakes and we look at how the ground rises and falls. We look at gas emissions. Uh, so we're pretty confident that we'd spot it if an eruption was uh, building up. But if an eruption were to occur, it's probably going to be a small one. That's a relief. Roger, you said before that there are no disasters that aren't actually natural, just human. What did you mean? It was interesting. Yesterday, we had the inaugural meeting of the Cambridge Disaster Research Network. And one of the ground rules set from the very beginning, and this was a, quite a substantial group of people covering the sciences, humanities and so on, was that we're going to drop the title uh, natural disasters. So, so I took some great comfort from that and I felt that I was in, uh, I was not just a lone voice in this. But my own convictions have come out of my own research. And what I mean by this is we need to distinguish very carefully between what we call natural hazards, which are natural events uh, fitting into a, a sort of categorization of geophysical, meteorological, climatological, biological, and even extraterrestrial. Uh, these are things that, that happen as natural processes, which in and of themselves, uh, in other words, until humans become involved or affected, are, are quite harmless. Um, but they're absolutely necessary for the sustaining the beautiful universe and create, particularly our Earth, in which we live. And without them, life would become certainly very moribund, if not uh, almost non non-existent. So we have these natural processes, and that in itself means that nature, or from a, a Christian perspective, creation is not necessarily a safe place. Uh, and, and it's quite interesting that the Hebrew Bible has many references to the wildness of life, if you like, which God is in control of, or creator is in control of, but we are not. That's a very great counter to human hubris, that we can control everything. So what happens when a natural hazard becomes a disaster, in, in my view, is very much down to human interaction, uh, human choices, human decision-making, which is often controlled by moral factors, if you like, or ethical choices that are neither ethical and can often be very immoral. And that is uh, an indication of how out of sync we are with the way creation operates and is meant to operate. And that's when it results in catastrophe for human beings and human life, and also for the creation itself. 
it is catastrophic and humans i'm i'm afraid are very much at the center of the uh, the causation for that marie yeah we often say actually in uh, in earthquake geoscience you know it's not the earthquake that kills but it's the buildings you know it's the human side um, but it's actually much deeper than that. Yeah, we see very skewed impacts of natural disasters. And it tends to be the poor, of course, that are hit the hardest, those that can't afford to buy secure housing, those that are forced to live in unsafe areas without the protection of engineering solutions to protect them from flooding and things like that. Um, so a good example of that was Hurricane Katrina, of course, the Category 5 hurricane that hit New Orleans uh, in 2005, causing 1,800 deaths and more than $100 billion in damage. And that was largely regarded as a poor preparedness, and the response was very poor, and the fatal engineering failure of the levees. But in Haiti as well, which was the other uh, cause celebre for disaster response chaos, uh, the disaster after the disaster. And, And what struck me very much there was the impact of our poverty I always remember the a comment made by the medical anthropologist Paul Farmer when he said that some societies are almost doomed to social scarcity and poverty. In other words, there there are certain parts of the world that are determined to keep people poor for all sorts of social and commercial and often corrupt reasons. And that is the sad thing because... of the world's population lives in poverty and in areas that are most vulnerable to natural hazards. That's a very stunning statistic in my view. I think all listeners would agree that human interventions have caused a great deal of suffering, but surely these are natural disasters. Just before this podcast started, I rewatched the video of the tsunami in Indonesia in 2004 in Thailand because for me, that was the first time global technological communication brought home to someone I was on holiday because it was around Christmas that it was happening and as it was happening. And it was so striking. These weren't people who were all impoverished. I mean, there were, there were many, many, many poor people, but there were people on the holiday in beautiful hotels. So surely it wasn't simply about social economic factors. It was a great deal more to it than that. It seemed to me, at least, that it was a natural disaster. Why wasn't it? Yeah, that was a really interesting event. I mean, the 2004 Boxing Day earthquakes and tsunami uh, caused a disaster of a magnitude rarely seen. So more than a quarter of a million dead, largely due to the destructive effects of the tsunami, of course. And the failure there was really in I think two areas. One is the tsunami warning system didn't work. You know, people didn't get the warnings they needed, the timely warnings they needed to evacuate in time. And that's been really addressed since. I mean, obviously, that was a huge wake up call for the world. And the tsunami warning systems, both in the Indian Ocean and the Pacific, uh, have have really been ramped up uh, since. But I think the second factor is education. And it was really striking, actually, that that earthquake was followed a year later with an equally large earthquake and tsunami. And in fact, the local people knew exactly what to do. And as they did during the 2004 earthquake, they saw the sea recede, they saw all the coral reefs exposed, they saw fish flapping around on the seabed, and they knew what to do. They knew that that was the the precursor to an extremely large wave. So they went to high ground. And in fact, some of the tourists knew 
there was a story that made the news at the time of a, a schoolgirl who just learned in her geography lesson about tsunamis. And she was actually able to warn the entire beach that this was what was about to happen. And she guided everyone to safety. But of course, the vast majority of these tourists, they may have been wealthy, but it was education, ultimately, that was a factor in, in this disaster. I think the other thing is that the uh, why did they build the hotels where they did? These are all beachfront hotels and in an area prone to seismic shifts and possible tsunamis, then uh, there's a tragedy waiting to happen, in my view. But again, there are commercial uh, reasons involved in that. So soon after the tsunami, the properties which were owned by fishermen, fisher people, four fisher people who, who eked a living from the sea, were turned off their properties and the properties were grabbed by the commercial developers for, for tourism and hotels went up in their place. So again, there was a huge amount of corruption and political scandal involved in that, making people very, very vulnerable to that uh, particular hazard. But before we move on to another subject, doesn't that just illustrate that social economic factors aggravated the natural disaster rather than were its cause? I think it's more than that, Ed. I think it's much more than that. Unless we face up to that, we're still going to see lives and livelihoods being lost catastrophically. We really need to have to face up to these human dynamics, take responsibility for them, because we can do something about them. We can do something about them quite easily. And yet human greed, corruption, the desire to expand our egos and all the rest of these easy, these are causing the disaster, in my view. The seismic movements are there. And the, the benefit we have with people like uh, Marie here is that our understanding of these events is, is, is developing hugely. So we can take mitigating measures. And unfortunately, we are not doing what we need to do. So lives are being lost. And I should probably say also that the frequency of the hazards are not, is not increasing. We're not getting more and more volcanic eruptions. You know, we have the same number of earthquakes occurring every year. What's changing, as we've talked about, is, is the human side of it. You know, urbanisation, poverty, increasing size of our cities, you know, the increasing poverty in, in the cities that doesn't allow us to keep up to date with the building codes and so on in various areas of the world. So usually we'd say that the hazard itself is not the problem. It's not something that can be stopped. And the problem and the aspect that can be mitigated is our lack of resilience or our vulnerability to hazards. Of course, there's one class of hazard for which that's not true, and that's the climate change related hazards. And those are increasing in frequency. You're listening to Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler, and my guests this week are Marie Edmonds, and Roger Abbott, and we're talking about natural disasters. I started by quoting Pliny's account of the Vesuvius eruption, which became famous partly because such descriptions were exceedingly rare. These days, mobile phone footage and TV crews make us all too aware of these disasters. Here's the seismologist Brian Bapti speaking on the Naked Scientist podcast, Leprosy, The Lowdown. 
it's certainly true to say that there are far more people living in earthquake-prone regions, mainly because of increases in global population. So there's this huge swathe of Asia that can be struck by big earthquakes stretching from Turkey, Iran, through India and into China, where global populations have really increased in a big way. And in those regions, earthquakes are capable of having far larger impacts than they have in the past. Do population growth and modern communications technology change our attitudes to natural disaster? Well, population growth uh, and urbanisation has made it, I think, ever more critical to develop disaster preparedness uh, in terms of building codes, evacuation plans, engineering solutions to prevent flooding, etc. And I think it's true to say that our cities are becoming ever more precarious and vulnerable, particularly in Uh, certain parts of the world and developing countries and so on Um, and of course one one very good example of that is the earthquake belt in central asia uh, where where the population is increasing um, as a result of it being really part of the ancient trade routes that link europe and china but this also happens to be a zone of continental convergence Uh, where strike-slip faults, that's where two plates move past one another, and also uh, what we call thrust faults, where one plate moves up against another, uh, mean that this is an incredibly hazardous part of the world in terms of earthquake hazard. And, you know, the 2003 earthquake, for example, in BAM, left 26,000 people dead, and the whole city was razed to the ground. And that's because most of the buildings were made of mud bricks. Um, A similar-sized earthquake in California would barely cause a roof tile to fall off. Uh, and, and Roger, you've worked in some of those zones with the people who suffered the most, the poor in Haiti, in New Orleans. Tell us a little bit about that work and if you'd like, contextualise it theologically as well for us. I was actually in Haiti 10 months after the earthquake, but not as a, as a researcher. I was there as a, a, a chaplain, actually. And it was not only just after the earthquake, but it was in the middle of a cholera epidemic which struck Haiti just nine months after after the earthquake. So that added another dimension, if you like, to the complexity that uh, and the tragedy that people were contending with there. And then I went back on three visits between 2012, 2015, as a researcher. And uh, my particular brief was to explore the influence of religious beliefs, faith beliefs, on the way people... Uh, survivors responded to the earthquake and, and and were recovering from it and helped how those beliefs helped or hindered mitigating uh, future events. So it's absolutely fascinating from that point of view. I worked in the cities, worked in the capital, Port-au-Prince, where there was huge devastation, and also up in the rural areas, uh, the rural towns and the rural, and, and the rural mountains. Haiti, as you know, has very, very bad press. (laughs) It's the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere, is the usual strapline and so on. Working there and doing ethnography and having these in-depth interviews with people who had gone through, you know, unimaginable experiences in in, in the earthquake uh, was a huge privilege. And I came to have a great respect for Haitian people. Uh, I came to have a lot of disrespect for the NGOs that uh, crowded into the country, were already there before the earthquake, and then crowded in to monopolize uh, financially and commercially 
on, on the devastation, the disaster after the disaster, as it's, as it's been dubbed. Uh, but for the Haitian people, I had enormous respect. And uh, so I did in-depth interviews with them. I did about 168, between 168 and 200 interviews with, with people. And it was, it was uh, a mirror and, and a, a very granular, if you like, experience of what it is to go through an earthquake in a society that has already been, you know, demolished and used and abused by high-income countries. Uh, and then I went to work in New Orleans 10 years after Katrina. And uh, once again there, I was faced with the, the human contributions to uh, a hurricane that actually missed the, the uh, large parts of, uh, of New Orleans and, and had reduced to a Category 3 from being a Category 5 in the Gulf of Mexico to a Category 3 by the time it bypassed New Orleans. And, and people in New Orleans and Louisiana face hurricanes as they are this year, so they were doing them on a regular basis. They know how to live with them. They know how to survive them. What they couldn't come to terms with, of course, was the flood that came in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. And the reasons for that, uh, Marie has already uh, referred to some of those, were entirely human. So as I say to people, I, I end up in some very beautiful places in the world where some very, very terrible things have happened. And uh, it is a beautiful world when we look at the nature that's the stunning thing. The natural phenomenon that I work amongst are incredible, and Marie will appreciate that. But at the same time, it's a very, very dark world when you come to dig underneath the social aspects, the political aspects of life. Human nature is capable of very beautiful and wonderful things, but it's also capable of some very, very dark and devious things. Well, I certainly agree with Roger that, you know, these natural phenomena are incredibly beautiful. And as a volcanologist, I get to go to volcanoes. And part of what I do is to try and reconstruct past events. Um, I'm a petrologist. Now, that's from the Greek word petros, which means rock. So I study the rocks. And in fact, I make very detailed studies of the crystals and the bits of magma trapped in crystals to try and reconstruct, actually, the impacts, the environmental impacts of past eruptions. And based on that information, I can then develop models for future eruptions, how frequent they may be, what their impact might be, you know, all the way from the very large eruptions of Earth's past, where enormous outpourings have caused mass extinctions and so on, um, to the much smaller eruptions that have happened over the last couple of decades. So I've worked in Montserrat and in the Caribbean, uh, in Hawaii and so on. So to some extent, scientists have to remain objective. I mean, my role in this is to understand the hazard, but I'm becoming increasingly interested in how to improve our resilience to this hazard, particularly volcanic eruptions, and reduce vulnerability. Um, so in that sense, you know, I'm really interested in what, what Roger's got to say. And I think there's a, a huge role for us all to get together uh, to talk about these kinds of important issues. Roger, you, you mentioned the topic of faith, as well as the human attributes such as resilience, which is common across all people, religious and non-religious. But there are, aren't there, theological aspects or biblical aspects that provide sustenance and guidance in your work? 
one of my passions again which i've learned from the uh, the work that i do is that uh, as a theologian as a practical theologian i'm well aware of the the theodicies that are uh, perennially turned out or referred to by by theologians and religious communities uh, and media interviewers <laughs> in in the wake of disasters i must confess i do get annoyed by that <laughs> Because these things, these theodicies have been going on for centuries and centuries, and no one has ever yet come up with one that everyone says, ah, we've nailed it. We, we haven't nailed it. We never will nail it. But what we, what we do have, which are equally theological issues, actually, are the human aspects. I mean, the wonderful thing about the Hebrew Bible and the Christian scriptures is that they identify human evil. And, and they're quite upfront about it. They're much more upfront about it than we are, actually. And that's why they're so challenging to us. So if I hark back to the areas in which I've worked, taking Haiti and, 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 and uh, New Orleans, uh, both very religious communities, very much so. Um, but I didn't hear anyone in the interviewing I did saying, well, I think we need to look at this theodicy. They just didn't have that take on it. They didn't even blame God. That's the stunning thing. They didn't even blame God. In fact, they found huge comfort from their faith. What they did blame was the humans involved, and they knew the human factors involved, governments, international governments, foreign policies, and, you know, they complained, they lamented of the poverty that they had to live with. And so there were huge issues of social justice, which the Hebrew Bible, of course, is um, the prophets, the minor prophets in particular, are, highlight enormously as very serious issues. And, and these are issues which we can address, should address from a theological perspective. So I suppose I became... <laughs> more and more identified with some of the aspects of liberation theology and their contribution to remedying some of the situations that were so devastating and that I, I was working in. Do you have a sense that although we talk about being so interconnected, we really aren't as interconnected as we in the West like to proclaim because of fundamental social economic factors, which means that those who are poor are always the ones who suffer? Yes, I mean, we're we're connected in that we're human, we're human beings. Wherever we go, whatever our race uh, or, or economic status, we are human beings. But uh, we are very, very disconnected as well when it comes to being able to understand each other. I mean, how can a president of one of the most powerful nations in the earth refer to Haitians in the way in which he did? And he's not unique in that. I mean, people think of Haiti as a rubbish place to be. And that's just, a, that's just a, an economic commentary on their ignorance. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've talked about uh, the impacts of natural disasters, increasing resilience and decreasing vulnerability. And I think looking to the future... I completely agree with, with Roger and his assessment of where we stand in terms of how connected we all are and what we need to do. 
I think better international cooperation is clearly needed. We need to share resources a lot better, work towards a common goal. And I think our current situation with this pandemic has shown us that we're woefully unprepared for the events that threaten humanity on large scales and small scales. So we need to prepare for the million death earthquake, the trillion dollar hurricane, the 100 million death pandemic with simulations, detailed planning, mitigation. And I think science is is part of the answer. I mean, it's certainly at the root of these efforts to mitigate against natural disasters, and it must be supported across all scales and in the critical fields of geophysics, biology, meteorology and ocean dynamics. So do you think the complexity of modern society is a blessing or is it a curse? Modern society is clearly highly complex in terms of on one side of the coin there's uh, urbanization and and poverty and all of the problems that that brings poor city planning and and so on but modern society I think also brings immense opportunity in terms of wealth scientific advance all things that arguably improve our chances with natural hazards in terms of preparedness monitoring response and recovery and I think what's what's really struck me with this conversation um, and and talking to, to Roger as well is that really to tackle these problems uh, in in a robust way. We really need to bring people together across all of the disciplines in a truly interdisciplinary way, which means we all try to understand each other's disciplines and actually reach out and work across disciplines rather than being, you know, the traditional multidisciplinary approach, which is that we all stay within our own little silos and do our own thing. I mean, and there's clearly a a push towards interdisciplinary work in this area, which I think will really make an impact. I agree entirely with Marie on that. It's another of my passions, especially working with the Faraday Institute, that there is partnership and this multidisciplinary work I endorse what Maria's already said. We we need that. Theologically, it can be justified because it's a world that is open to scientific exploration and, uh, and, and commentary. So we need that kind of partnership because that's what saves lives and livelihoods. And that, that's the most important thing of all. We've reached the end of this podcast without a major disaster. My thanks to our guests, Marie Edmonds and Roger Abbott. If you like what you heard, please get in touch with any reflections of your own. You can email nakedreflections at wolf.cam.ac.uk and let us know what subjects you'd like to hear more about and how you'd like us to cover them. We'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, you can find more episodes of Naked Reflections and subscribe to the Naked Reflections podcast wherever you access your podcasts or at nakedscientists.com slash reflections. Do join us next time. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.